Amen. Be seated. to celebrate Christiana Fitzpatrick's birthday. I mean, no, we're here. <laughs> Covenant College is part of the Reformed tradition. We are part of, as the Reformed tradition, part of a stream from a much larger river known as the Protestant Reformation or Protestant Christianity. And this fall, we mark the 500th anniversary or birthday of that movement. And in response to that, Covenant College faculty have started a series in which we explore the question, Reformed for what? This series is not a narrow look at the theology or the doctrines of grace, but rather a consideration of the social, intellectual, and cultural implications of the Reformed tradition and the ways that we should understand our callings in life as faithful disciples of Jesus. It's my great pleasure to briefly introduce our speaker this morning, Dr. Carol Yu. That's right. After doing an undergraduate degree at Sanford University, she went on and did her MA and PhD from UCLA. And she's been here at Covenant College in the psychology department since 2014. Her research is focused on human learning, memory, and metacognition. And I can say that this, this summer, for example, she led the entire faculty in kind of our continuing education. She led um, some discussions and it's clear she knows what she's talking about, is an authority in her field. And so I, with you, I'm eager to hear what she has for us this morning. So please welcome Dr. Carol Yu. Thank you, Dr. Kapik, for that introduction. And good morning, guys. Hi. So, as Dr. Kapik mentioned, I'm a psychology professor. And when I tell people that I'm a psychology professor, they generally have one of two reactions. They're either really excited or they're really nervous. And the excited ones immediately want to ask me all about their uncle or sister or spouse or someone who, they, who either has or they think has some psychological disorder. Um, or sometimes they want me to explain their dreams, which is kind of fun. <laughs> um, and the nervous ones seem to think I'm going to uncover some of their own deep secrets. Um, and actually, of course, I can't do any of that. So, in the spirit of honesty, I do have to clarify that I am a cognitive psychologist. And they look a little confused. So I go on to say that I have no training in clinical work or counseling, um, that I don't and really shouldn't have anything to do with treating patients. And they just look so disappointed. <laughs> you know, sometimes even the nervous ones, which is a little surprising, but also understandable. Uh, human beings have a deep desire to be known and understood. 
And I'm very grateful to my friends and colleagues in the field who are called to a profession in counseling. But although separate from counseling, cognitive psychology actually does offer some pretty amazing insights into the human condition, and I think answers the desire to be understood just in a different way than most people think of when they first think of psychology. So cognitive psychologists study the mechanisms of the human mind. We might study perception, decision-making, creativity, or all sorts of other fascinating things. In particular, I study how people learn, which includes remembering and forgetting, as well as metacognition, which, as my students hopefully know, is how people think about learning. I think, and hopefully you do too, that's pretty interesting. At first glance, that type of research might not seem very spiritual, and indeed many psychologists, Christians and non-Christians alike, try to separate the field from the faith. For example, when I was in grad school at UCLA, several others in my program assumed that all Christians were fools who rejected science, and various jokes and casual comments reflected this belief, not necessarily with the intention of being hostile or insulting, I think, but just assuming that being a Christian and being a good psychological scientist were incompatible. Interestingly, I've gotten the flip side of this question from Christians, especially since I've started teaching at Covenant, how can you possibly study something as secular as psychology uh, and still honor God? Both groups assume that psychology and Christianity are like Klingons and Tribbles, or for you non-Trekkies like oil and water, uh, just far too distinct to possibly be in the same conversation. I don't think that this problem, that people tend to believe that Christianity and good scholarship aren't compatible, is unique to psychology, but that's where most of my experience comes from, so there you go. But this separation never made sense to me. I don't think that psychology just popped up one day, God took one look at it and said, nope, not doing anything with that nonsense. It doesn't make sense, of course not. I believe that God created humans in his image, which means that our minds also reflect part of that image. Psychology, as the study of human mind and behavior, works to reveal the structure and function of part of God's creation. Therefore, every experiment that I or my colleagues conduct that reveals some aspect of human memory also reveals a facet of our Creator and what He intends for us. And that's what I want to talk about more today, how God's created order underlies how we learn and what that means for how we as Christians can use and appreciate the capacities and limitations of our mind. So even if you're not a psychologist, you still theoretically have a brain. Uh, so I hope this connects to you in some way. I mentioned how disappointed people are at first when they find out I'm not a counselor. However, when they find out that my research is in the area of how to optimize learning, they often get excited again. After all, people, especially students, spend a lot of time studying and learning. And any tips for learning more or learning more efficiently are generally welcome. However, as they listen to the answer, often their faces fall again. I am apparently in the business of perpetually disappointing people. You see, there's no quick fix, no magic pill, not even just six simple steps to a perfect memory, and you wouldn't want one anyway. 
Learning is hard, which I don't need to tell you during midterm season, but more accurately, it's effortful. And I think God intends it to be that way. Throughout the Bible, we see God addressing issues of memory and forgetting. Over and over again, God commands his people to remember him. He even offers them some tools for remembering, retelling his story to the younger generations, praying, observing various feasts. And this doesn't let up in the New Testament. We're still instructed to observe the Lord's Supper, more praying, more retelling his story to others. And these are all reminders, and they highlight the importance of our memories and sharing our experiences. We are a forgetful people, and we need constant practice at retrieving that information from memory. Now, those of you who have had me in class know that I'm a big fan of retrieval practice, which is a fancy way of saying quizzing. In fact, I love my students so much that sometimes I even give them spontaneous opportunities for retrieval practice, which some of you might call pop quizzes. I tell my students about the evidence supporting the value of retrieval practice, not just for evaluating learning, but for actually promoting learning, and not just memorizing facts, but for promoting conceptual understanding, too. Retrieving information helps us not only remember that information better later, but it also makes us better at restudying that same or similar information. These benefits have been seen in hundreds of psychological studies with all sorts of materials and perhaps even in your own experience. But it can also be traced down to the neural level. Each time we learn something new, our neurons fire in a certain pattern based on a combination of factors. So the information that we're trying to learn, our prior knowledge about that information, and our current context. When we sleep, our brains rehearse that pattern in a process called memory consolidation. Essentially, we practice using those neural connections in that particular configuration. When we recall that previously learned information later, when we're awake, those neural pathways fire again, perhaps making additional connections. After repeated retrieval or practice over time, physiological changes result at the neural level. Neurons along that pathway develop more receptor sites, which makes them more receptive to incoming signals. And so the entire network processes those signals more efficiently. In other words, learning and retrieving causes your brain cells to physically change. What? That's amazing. Okay. Um, this process is called long-term potentiation, in case you're curious, and it means that over time, connections between neurons become stronger based on those practice patterns of activity. And this has the benefit of making it easier for us to retrieve information um, in the future. So you're more likely to remember something if you've been tested on it and practice those neural pathways. What's more, when a lot of learning occurs that's all related to one topic, then those neural changes overlap and work together in a network of existing knowledge. Cognitive psychologists call those organized frameworks of knowledge schemas. The more elaborate or developed your schema is, the easier it is to fit something new into that framework. In other words, past learning facilitates future learning. Hopefully you seniors have experienced this too in your own areas of expertise, 
as you advance in your studies. It's a lot easier, it should be a lot easier, for you to learn some new information within your major than it was at first. You now have a solid framework of strong neural connections and schemas uh, to fit new learning into, and you can see connections between ideas more easily. Um, that also hopefully gives you something to look forward to for those of you just beginning to build expertise as well. It does get easier. As a side note, it's also a benefit of a liberal arts education. You learn to learn in a variety of domains, and that helps you be a stronger and more diverse learner in the future. I'm kind of making all this seem like a magical, natural process, and it sort of is, but at the same time, it's really not. Again, I say to you, learning is effortful. You might not feel those physiological changes that I described, but in order for them to occur and to last, you have to put some mental effort into learning. You can't just stare at a text and hope that it will sort itself out in your head or sit in a classroom and assume that knowledge simply increases by your being there. The phrase passive learning is an oxymoron to psychologists. Learning is active, physically and mentally. I unfortunately don't have time to talk in great detail, detail about specific effortful processes that promote learning, but there are several, and I encourage you to take a psychology class to find out more. I've been talking about neurons and behavior, but something I find really interesting is how the active nature of remembering is rooted in scripture, and in fact, how it helps me understand scripture a little better. God knows that learning is effortful, which, as we've already mentioned, is why he recommends or even commands us to retrieve information repeatedly. Retrieving evidence of God's behavior toward us strengthens our own understanding of his nature. On another level, I don't know if you've ever looked closely at this, but when scripture describes God as remembering, the phrase is almost always accompanied by an action. Just a few examples, when God remembers Noah in Genesis 8, he makes a wind blow over the earth and the waters subside, and he ends the great flood. In Exodus 2 and 3, when Israel is groaning under the Egyptians, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then appeared to Moses and began the process of delivering the Israelites from Egypt. The psalmist recognizes this pattern, too. When he describes God remembering, it's always accompanied by a description of the blessing or benevolent action that followed from the retrieval. For example, in Psalm 106, the psalmist is describing Israel's rebellion and subsequent punishment. And then in verse 45, he tells us that when God heard their cry, he remembered his covenant and relented. Retrieval leads to action. Similarly, when the distraught and desperate psalmist pleads for God to remember, such as in Psalm 25 or 74, for a couple examples, he doesn't simply want a passive thought to flit across God's consciousness. He pleads for benevolent action. When we consider the Lord's Supper, Christ tells his disciples, and by extension us, to take the elements in remembrance of him. Remembering Christ's sacrifice is tied with the act of taking the sacrament. To me, this fits with what I know about human memory. Remembering doesn't mean just sitting back and replaying an event that happened in your past. Our memories don't work like video cameras. Remembering means that we effortfully access prior knowledge and combine it with our current context in a way that affects behavior now and in the future. 
And because memories affect our behavior, that means it matters what we encode, what we retrieve, and how often. Now, I've begun to hint at another property of memory, one that is slightly dangerous, that it is limited and imperfect. We're really bad at encoding and retrieving details, really bad. Um, Even you detail-oriented accountants and engineers and such, uh, we're just not as accurate as we think we are or as we'd like to be. Every time that we encode or first learn a memory, we try to fit it into a context that we understand, and that's those existing schemas or networks of knowledge. And that means that sometimes you might modify new information just a little bit or fill in some gaps that information uh, so that it fits what you already know a little bit easier. And when we retrieve a memory, it's like pulling a fragile scrapbook out of storage and exposing it to air, uh, maybe even spilling some coffee on it. We re-encode it, we relearn it with whatever context we're in at that moment. We put it back into storage, our long-term memory, and then it gets re-consolidated or reformed. Although this strengthens some parts of the memory, we've also altered it slightly. We've added context, maybe focused on something different this time around, uh, maybe even rewritten our personal history just a little bit. Now, before you get too scared, this usually isn't drastic. Um, A slightly different word order of what someone said, maybe a different color shirt or something. Uh, But our memories do change over time. The truth is, our memories are not designed to be perfect. Although misremembering or forgetting can be frustrating, it's an important part of memory. Many of my fellow cognitive psychologists believe, and evidence strongly suggests, that forgetting is more a matter of losing access to a retrieval pathway than it is some of the information being completely wiped from our minds. That's an important distinction. Once you encode and consolidate a memory then, Uh, that information is still there somewhere. You just might not be able to find it, much like some of you might feel going through the various piles in your dorm room. What seems to happen is that other information becomes more salient, perhaps because you retrieve it more frequently or it's connected to more cues in your current environment. But whatever the reason, under normal circumstances, Uh, some other neural pathway just becomes more accessible. And to me, this helps me understand when the Bible talks about God forgetting, like like forgetting our sins. Even though that seems like a good thing, uh, when I was little, I always got a little confused because I always wondered, you know, if God knows everything all the time, how can he forget anything? Um, Some of you might have wondered similar things. But knowing what forgetting really is, that it's losing access Uh, perhaps intentionally closing off access to some uh, piece of information, that makes more sense. Forgetting isn't a flaw. It's part of how our minds reflect God's character. We don't have as much control over it or even awareness of our own forgetting and remembering as God does, but we are blessed to be able to do both. Before we go, I do want to touch on one thing I just mentioned, the control and awareness of our mental abilities. In Augustine's Confessions, he describes the power of the mind as a vast and infinite profundity, which is beautiful. 
but that despite its vastness, is yet too restricted to understand its own extent or abilities. He wrote that over 1,500 years ago, and it's still true. We know a lot about how memory and forgetting works, but we certainly don't know everything. And importantly, we're not very good at implementing what we do know. This gets back to what I called metacognition at the beginning of this talk, our knowledge about our own minds. For example, I've told you that retrieval practice or quizzing is beneficial to memory. And I've even explained a little bit about why. However, psychological research has revealed that in general, learners are not sensitive to the benefits of retrieval or other effective strategies. They prefer to study using easier but less effective strategies, such as rereading chapters over and over. And while more effective strategies could be practicing retrieval by having a study partner quiz you, spacing out your study over time, which would mean you have to start earlier, um, or writing out explanations or concept maps to understand the relationships between topics, we generally prefer what's easy rather than what's helpful. But remember, successful learning is effortful, and blessedly so. As I said, there's way more that we could talk about here, but I'll let you sign up for a site class or come by my office to discuss more, um, especially about learning. I do hope, however, that you have a little greater appreciation of the order of God's creation as it reveals itself through your mind and as we study it in psychological science. I hope that you remember to never ask me to diagnose a psychological disorder. Uh, lest you be terribly disappointed, uh, but that your understanding of how God formed your mind and your mental abilities helps you to embrace the effort of using those abilities as well as you can to establish those neural pathways and schemas. I hope that your acts of remembering and forgetting are accompanied by action, not just inside your head, but in your behavior as well and that you continually remember that you and your minds are image bearers of our Lord and Father. Please pray with me. We thank you, Father, for your dominion over all areas of creation, those inside our head and outside in the world. We pray for your guidance as we learn and remember, and as in your guidance in the actions that might accompany our learning. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.